Good evening, everyone. Yeah, if you don't know me, my name is Eddie, and um, if you've noticed, my voice sounds a little bit different. I'm coming off the tail end of a cold, not COVID. Don't worry. Um, and so, sorry for any croaks that might occur along the way. But tonight we are looking uh, at the triumphal entry of Jesus on Palm Sunday. So we're going to be spending most of our time in, in that, that chapter we had read out to us um, in Luke by Bridget. Uh, but we also had that psalm, uh, Psalm 27 read out about the, the Davidic king, uh, so written by David, about the king surrounded on all sides and yet trusting in God. Uh, and it's also helpful to think of that psalm, which ultimately points us to Jesus and the mindset that he had on the road to Calvary. So I'm going to pray now as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your Son. We pray that as we hear your word tonight, uh, you might help us to understand your word, to love it, and to respond rightly to it. We pray all this in his name. Amen. What are they doing? I wonder if you've ever asked that question when you've been watching someone and you haven't been able to quite work out what is going on. Uh, perhaps a street artist who's like, putting some kind of artwork together and you're like, what are those shapes? And then it all comes together and it's, oh, that's what it is. It's a sun. I don't know. Um, or you're, you're looking down the street and you see some workers in, you know, in fluoro vests coming. You're like, oh, what are they doing? Are they working on the, um, you know, on the sewers or on the, the NBN? Uh, and you say, oh, okay, that's what they're doing. Uh, I tend to ask, what are they doing every day with my two-year-old daughter? Um, it is a question that constantly comes to mind. Uh, because she often has plans that are a complete mystery to me and the logic doesn't seem to fit together, but she does in fact have a plan. For instance, uh, this happened last week or the week before, uh, she got a piece of paper, right, just a white piece of paper, um, and then she cut it up into small little, did I say she's two? Anyway, yeah, she's two. She cut it up into small little, um, little squares, right, and then she started colouring in each individual little square with a texture. And, you know, you'd say, well, why didn't she just colour in the whole thing? Um, I don't know, you don't interfere with these processes, otherwise you get in big trouble. Uh, and so she got these little pieces of coloured texture squares and puts it in a, a little shaker, right? So I'm like, okay, what's she doing? Going to make snow or something, who knows? And then she goes up to the tap and fills it up with water. And so it turns out that what she was trying to do was make coloured water. Now, that is not the way that I would have done it, but there was a logic here and it all made sense when it came together. So... We are looking today at Palm Sunday, uh, the triumphal entry. And in one sense, it is seemingly straightforward, isn't it? Jesus enters a city, crowds cheering. Uh, he weeps when he sees the city. He drives out some money changers and gets in trouble. And yet we know there is more than meets the eye, isn't there? There is significance here. There is significance here that is recognized and loved by the disciples. There is significance that's recognized here and despised with the Pharisees. And there is significance here that is missed and misunderstood by those who are experiencing these events in the moment. Because there are layers to this event. And this event can only be ultimately understood in the grand scheme of what's happening in Luke. And particularly what is happening at Easter as Jesus heads on the road to the cross. It's only in the light of the cross and the resurrection we can truly appreciate what's going on here. But as we see these events, we might think, well... These are events of history and they can kind of be difficult to relate to, right? Sitting here, 
uh, 2,000 or so years later? What are they, what's the relevance here for me as we read about what Jesus is doing here? It's important to say, I think, that all of this passage throws our attention, not so much on us, but onto God and what He has done. Because the gospel, when it's you know, all said and done, what the gospel is, it's not about really what you and I do per se, but it's what God has done. And we respond to it. Uh, what pers- person is doing will dictate the way you respond to them. Say you've got someone playing in the snow, your friend's playing in the snow, uh, if somehow it managed to actually snow down here. And say they were realised, oh, they're building a snowman. Well, that's nice. Maybe I'll go join in. You might respond that way. But say you see them compacting a snowball and walking towards you slowly and menacingly, you might have a different response. Well, what we're going to see when it comes down to what Jesus is doing here, that this is really all about peace. You see that word peace mentioned a couple of times in the passage, but everything that's going on here is about peace. We're going to see Jesus is the Prince of Peace, Uh, as he goes to Jerusalem, the city of peace is known as. And then we have to know what kind of peace we're talking about and how is it achieved. And that is how we know how to respond. So if you've got your outline there, we have a couple of points as we go through the passage. We've got the aim of Jesus. We've got the claim of Jesus. We've got the pain of Jesus. The rhyming scheme breaks down here. We have the peace of Jesus. uh, And finally, Jesus does what is necessary. I couldn't think of a, a particular word. Maybe the plan of Jesus. There we go. But we're going to take, this is going to take us through the passage. Firstly, the aim of Jesus. And it begins with Jesus, in verse 28, going to Jerusalem. And that should set us off immediately because he's going to Jerusalem and Jerusalem is the end game. The gospel started here in Jerusalem and the disciples know that everything that is important is about to happen is going to happen here in Jerusalem as he is going there. And we can feel like a bit of an outsider as we read this scene because we feel like people are having some pretty strong reactions, right? It's just a guy riding a donkey. But you've got the Pharisees, I'm sorry, the, the disciples who are cheering and excited. You've got the Pharisees who are, you know, utterly disgusted. And what we see is something big is happening. We've got to see the symbolism. Um, we're told that Jesus uh, goes and sources and gets, or just gets his disciples, doesn't he, to source a donkey for him from a nearby village. It's a donk, has to be a donkey that's never been ridden. And so they go and they you know, make the claim the Lord needs it and they get the donkey. Now, on the surface, Jesus maybe is just getting a ride. Maybe he's a bit tired from his travels, so he's going to get a ride up to the city. But anyone who is familiar, and these guys would have been familiar with the Old Testament, they would know the prophet Zechariah, and they would know that by riding a donkey up to Jerusalem, he wasn't just hitching a ride, he was doing something big. Zechariah says this in in chapter 9, verse 9. He says, "'Rejoice greatly.'" Daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, uh, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Zechariah has promised that the future Messiah that God would send to bring his kingdom would come towards the city on a donkey. And so any savvy disciple, they see clearly, oh, This is what Jesus is doing. He is declaring he's the Messiah with righteousness and victory in his wake. And you think, well, that's that's such a big deal. I mean, he's already been doing a lot of crazy and wonderful things. But this is a monumental moment because previously Jesus had been unwilling to declare publicly that he was the Messiah. He didn't want people to get the wrong idea of what he was here to do. But now with this act of riding into the city, people now have to be aware that this is his moment. 
He is announcing and declaring that he is the king that they have been waiting for. And so at this point, you know, the hype train is leaving the station uh, for the disciples. They were ecstatic at what Jesus is going to do. You know, they're pulling out the, the, their cloaks, laying them down. It's like the red carpet. And you have them joyfully praising God, don't you? In loud voices. And they say, blessed is the Lord. Uh, blessed is the king, sorry, who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That first line there is quoting from Psalm 118. And in the old days when the king would come up to the city, they would sing that line to him. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That second line, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, you might say, oh, that kind of sounds familiar if you know Luke well. You might remember the angels back in Luke 2. They say something similar at Jesus' birth. They say, glory to God and peace to those with whom God is pleased. See, it's all, it's all coming together. Uh, he is the promised Prince of Peace. He's going to take charge. He's going to bring heaven's peace and the glory of God. So if this was a movie, right, you know uh, at this point in the movie, it's all going to turn out great. The happy ending is coming. It's the hero's moment. They're going to they're go and they're going to win. And the disciples see this. Uh, and there's a sense, I think, where they get it right and they get it wrong. They're right. Jesus is the king. He's announcing that now is his moment and his exaltation is coming. But we don't quite see this here, but we, we realize that they actually fail ultimately to understand the kind of king that he is and what this exaltation would mean. They're thinking that he's going to come as that kind of conquering national hero, kind of like a Marvel superhero and just boot out the Romans and then lead Israel um, to kind of expand the rule of God over the world. But if we look at what Jesus is doing, there's something more here, isn't there? His entry is a humble one. He doesn't ride in on a war horse, which, or the equivalent of like a limo or a Rolls Royce, just on a donkey. And he is signaling that he is a humble king who brings peace with very different expectations um, to what the disciples have. If you had told them there and then that this guy who they are worshipping and praising, you know, in a week or so, was going to end up hanging on a cross they would have been appalled. They would have been disgusted. It would have been absurd, repulsive. They'd say, no, that cannot be. Then he cannot be the Christ. You see, this uh, was, would have been repulsive even later in Christian history. Um, just a couple hundred years later, there was a guy called uh, Basilides. He was called like, a Gnostic teacher, right? And he claimed, because um, he couldn't handle the idea of Jesus being crucified, he claimed that when it was time for Jesus to be crucified, he performed a little switcheroo on the cross with some like random that was, you know, walking on by. And so then this other random was suddenly on the cross and Jesus was there laughing at him. Anyway, he was uh, obviously a false teacher uh, and everyone thought he was a nutter. But what that shows is how unbelievable it was for people to think, wait, how can this be the king of glory? But what we realize as we see the full picture is that true glory is found in servanthood and in love. It's not by his power, but by his love and service that Jesus shows he is worthy of the crown. We then come to a claim of Jesus. Now, he's been making claims, hasn't he, by riding on this donkey. But he then reacts to a claim um, that the, the Pharisees are telling him to stop making. They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They do not like what the disciples are saying. Now, it's very possible that they are scared. Uh, if you, they, they're scared what the Romans are going to do if they hear that this is going on. It's a pretty dangerous thing to claim you're a king. Um, you know, if when you're ruled by a Roman emperor, you don't tend to live very long if you try to do this kind of thing. 
But I think even further than this, they could not accept that Jesus would be the king, that he would challenge their authority, and that he would say that God's mercy, that's the way you enter the kingdom, not in moral perfection. So they're offended. Uh, the, the disciples are saying this, and the people today, they can weaponize the idea of being offended to shut down uh, something they don't like. Like, oh, I don't like what you're saying, I'm offended, so you've got to stop it. And in some sense, I think that's what these Pharisees are doing. They're saying, you've got to tell your disciples to zip it. Of course, as Christians, we shouldn't go around intentionally offending people, um, but sometimes the truth is going to hurt those who do not like it. It doesn't stop it from being true. And the scriptures tell us the message of the gospel, that Jesus is Lord, will be offensive to those who do not want him. Because it is exclusive. It says he's the only way. It is universal. It says this is important and binding for every person. It forces us to no longer be the one who is first, but it cannot be denied. And Jesus says, if they keep quiet, my disciples, then the very stones are going to cry out. The creation itself is going to speak. It's also maybe a little bit of a rebuke to the Pharisees saying, these rocks over there, they have a better idea of what's going on than you do. But it's a sign to us that we as Jesus' followers, we need to keep proclaiming the truth. Because no matter what pressure we face, inwardly or externally, we need to realise it is true and we need to continue in it. And so we come then to the pain of Jesus. You've got this incredible climactic statement that heaven and earth will not deny it's right, Jesus' rightful kingship, right? You've got all this high building. And then Jesus really, you know, becomes a major buzzkill. Um, he just really kills the mood from uh, triumph to tragedy. I think you saw, if you were followed the Oscars, or the news coming out of the Oscars uh, last week or two weeks ago, um, the kind of emotional switch in tone that can happen. What was meant to be, you know, a night of celebration uh, and honouring Will Smith, um, became one of extreme controversy uh, and awkwardness when he assaulted one of his uh, fellow celebrities. And Jesus sees the praise that's going on, but he knows what is coming, and so he weeps over Jerusalem. He knows that he is not moving to a place to be accepted, but to be rejected. He's not going to be going to sunshine and roses, but to a horror of horrors. And what this tells us is that the people of Jerusalem, they had missed their moment. There's a statement, isn't there, in verse 42. It's kind of profound. He says, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Jerusalem, the city of peace, had failed to realize the peace that they needed. They failed to see the kind of king that he is and therefore the kind of peace that they needed. Many thought the peace that was going to come by kicking out the Romans. I imagine even Jesus' followers were thinking that. Others probably thought they already had peace. They were fine with the Roman peace. You know, as long as the status quo was maintained, as long as their position and power and life was just good for them, then that was okay. But what Jesus tells us is ultimately they're going to be bringing wrath upon themselves. The irony is, but by going after this peace that they, they, they think they're going to have, they're going to lose everything. He speaks of this terrible judgment, doesn't he, in those verses. And this comes to pass... Um, in the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, uh, it was a terrible event. Um, it involved a mass, basically the massacre of most of the population of the city, uh, the temple, the heart of worship was destroyed. It was absolutely shocking and devastating 
for anyone who was a Jew at that time. We're told it is because they did not realize the time of their visitation. This is harsh, isn't it? It's a heavy, heavy sentence. But that's why we need to understand the peace that Jesus brings. And even in the midst of this, we can sometimes think God as a ruthless kind of dispenser of justice, like a, uh, like a robot judge. But look at the way that he responds to the city. He weeps for their sin. He sees this tragedy. Our natural response to be on the receiving end of injustice is usually indignance and anger. But Jesus is his sorrow because he is patient and God is patient with humanity and shows concern even for those who hate him. And yet it comes to the end of its tether. And that brings us to this question of peace. What is it that leads to peace? Because that is what is at the heart of what Jesus is doing. And the fundamental error of humanity is when we fail to understand that we need peace and that we, when we fail to understand the way that that peace comes along. Often people will find their peace in just in the external circumstances of their life. If I am at peace, well, if I am safe and comfortable, right, with no conflict in my life, if life is going well for me, if my relationships are, you know, are going well, then that's peace. More and more people today also look for the kind of the inner peace, don't they? That psychological peace. If I feel it well within myself, if I love myself and explore myself, if I find my true authentic self, then I will have true peace. What the Bible speaks of when it speaks of peace is something far more important and richer. Um, there's a Jewish word, shalom, you may have heard it, the Jewish word for peace. And what that points to is the right and ordered way of things under God, right? Basically, life as it's meant to be, that is what true peace is. And that is what does not currently exist in the world because of human sin. See, just as Judah didn't realize uh, that what made for peace, um, they, they didn't realize that they were um, not on the way to peace, but on the way to destruction, uh, the, the important thing is we need to realize where the conflict really lies. It lies between heaven and humanity, between us and God. Imagine tomorrow if you went to Ukraine uh, and you go to Kiev, and you just find a, a random stranger on the street uh, and that you were to tell them that their nation was at peace. I mean, what do you think they would say to you? Probably, that's really dumb. What? what? Uh, it's absurd. Well, it's equally as absurd to say that things can be fine between humanity and God without there being some reconciliation, without there being peace that is made. Even if everything else looks fine. Our sins mark us out. So what we do and what we, you know, what we do we shouldn't do and the things that we fail to do that we should, they mark us out as being the guilty party. And when it comes to the negotiating table with God... No matter what we think that we can bring to the table, it's going to fall short. You know, God, well, look at my, you know, look at my works. We can have peace. No. God, look at all that I have done for you. We can have peace. No. What is required is atonement, is for guilt to be forgiven and for wrath to be paid. And the good news is that Jesus is the one who makes peace. He is the peacemaker. And he goes through the greatest pain, a greater pain than he is feeling in this moment to make peace the peace that he gives us is not about pretending things haven't happened 
It's by substituting himself for us, paying for our guilt and the penalty of wrath. And so the offence is dealt with. That is the true peace that he gives us. And that is a peace that the world cannot give you. And he does this so that you and I might know the peace of heaven. We might know God as our Father. And this peace is kind of, it's hard to overemphasize how important the cross is when it comes to peace. Because it's the foundation for everything in some sense. It actually becomes, it's the way of cosmic peace, right? How is God going to fix this broken and sinful world? It's through the cross. How is it that we can find peace with one another? Well, we have peace with his son. So how can we not pursue peace with one another? It's through the cross. And even the inner peace uh, that we desire, it's not in finding ourselves, but in being found by the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you on the cross. Jesus goes to the cross to endure the greatest pain and shame in order to win us peace. What love that is. So Jesus does what is necessary. Um, he, go, he goes to the cross and he, he starts by going into Jerusalem. And what does this Prince of Peace do? He immediately goes and starts a fight with those in the temple. Uh, but he does this for a reason. Uh, the temple is an important place. To say it's important um, is an understatement for Jews. It was everything. Remember that psalm we had read out? There was one thing that that king asked for, one thing, that he would dwell in the house of the Lord and gaze on his beauty to be in the presence of God. That is the most important thing. So then Jesus, when he sees basically a commercial enterprise being set up in the temple, he's rightly incensed. And he goes to boot them out because he realizes the most important thing for us, the thing that we need, is to come to God and to be able to worship him truly. I mean, if you were to, if you were to say, have, have you, have, if you were to ask Jesus for one thing, for one important thing, what would that be? healthy, wealthy life, comfortable life. Ultimately, the thing that we really need is to know God and to be in his presence. And that is what he is doing. He's going all the way for that. And so the powerful rise up against him. Uh, in some way, he's, he's provoking them and they're going to destroy him. They can't do it at this point, but they're going to. And you have in that psalm, the king surrounded by his enemies, um, his life is under threat, and yet he trusts that God will see him through to the end. I mean, if I were in Jesus' situation, I would be scared witless. I would be finding it very, very difficult to trust. And yet Jesus knows that he can trust in God's deliverance. There's a final two lines um, in that psalm that I really love. It says, I will remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. It can be hard to wait in this fallen world. We don't see good things happening. It seems things go from kind of tragedy to tragedy. You've got the pandemic, you've got the floods, you've got the war, and you've just got the painful realities of everyday life in this world. And at times it might seem like the waiting's not going to end and that things will never resolve and things will never be as they should be. And yet the king who went to the cross knew that it was not the end, that he would be vindicated. And even in this terrible, evil thing, ultimately, what God does to the glory of God is he makes even greater things possible. 
While God no longer works with a specific nation like Israel, in fact, something better happens. The floodgates are open wide for Jews and for Gentiles to come in. Ultimately, the temple, uh, which was just, you know, is going to be destroyed. We can now meet God in the person of Jesus by coming and trusting in him. So when it all comes down to it, what is God doing in, in Jesus Christ? Well, he is God's king. He is the humble prince who, of peace who's come to save us. And he's the one we need to rule us. And when we realize what he is doing, we realize how to respond and that it affects us more deeply and profoundly than we could ever imagine. If perhaps you realize at this point, I don't know if I have peace. Well, you can have peace. Come to Jesus, the one who can give you the peace you need. The one who can make you right with God. And as if we were already doing that and trusting in God, we need to realize and be ready for God's visitation because we know that he is going to come again. Perhaps not today, or tonight I should say, perhaps not tomorrow, but one day he will return as the judge and as the one who will bring a complete and full peace. And so that leads us, I think, both to, to praise and trust, praise of what all the goodness of what God has done. And we're going to be seeing that in, in a minute or so, I think. Um, and which leading us to praise every day, perhaps as we go into Easter this week, um, each day maybe read a bit of Luke and see the love, uh, the glorious love that Jesus has for us as we, as we head towards uh, the cross and the resurrection. But also ultimately this, this gives us a reason to trust, doesn't it? That Jesus has saved us and that he will lead us to the end. He will fulfill his promise. He will lead us into the presence of God, the place where we really want to hope to be at the end of time. So I'm going to pray now that God would be in us and working with us and give us the peace that only he can give. Heavenly Father, we thank you that while we were powerless, that just at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We thank you that while he knew what it would cost, while he knew the horrors that await him, he went to the cross for our sake, to love us and to save us and to bring us the peace that we did not deserve. And Lord, we thank you that we can have this peace, we can have this assurance of knowing that we are right with you. And not only that, we are your loved children. We thank you for that this is the peace that means that we can know that uh, ultimately sin will be overcome in the world and evil will be defeated and all will be restored as it should be. And so as we look towards Easter, remind us of what it cost. As we look towards the Sunday, remind us of all that we have in Jesus and help us to be those who praise him and those who trust and follow him each day. Amen.